the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we hear from Dr. Leroy Hood and Dr. Nathan Price about the concept and promise of focusing on our wellness, all with the help of science. Dr. Hood developed the first technology to decode your DNA and is often called the father of systems biology. Dr. Price is the chief science officer of Thorne Health Tech and is a professor at the Institute for Systems Biology. They're here today with the age of scientific wellness, why the future of medicine is personalized, predictive, data-rich, and in your hands. And now, Dr. Leroy Hood and Dr. Nathan Price. Well, Dr. Hood and Dr. Price, welcome to Tech Nation. Glad to be here. Wonderful to be here. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Mara. Now, this is unusual for me. In fact, I don't recall ever having done this in the history of the show, but just about anybody can write a book. And I do a selection of your credentials before, during, and after this interview. But you two, when I look at your careers, you have enough credentials for six people. (laughs) You have enough credentials, uh, excellent credentials for six people. So when two people like you find the time to write a book, number one, I'm thinking it must be important. And number two, how the heck did this happen? Now, before we get to those questions, let me go a little deeper for our audience into your credentials. Dr. Price, you have a PhD and a master's in bioengineering from UC San Diego. And again, and uh, a selection of your credentials, Chief Science Officer for Thorne Health Tech, while you continue to be a professor at the Institute for Systems Biology and an affiliate professor at the University of Washington. You're on the Board of Life Sciences for the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, founded several companies, were an assistant professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and were an American Cancer Society postdoctoral fellow. And you're also the co-author with the fewest credentials. So just to say, don't feel bad. In this case, yes, definitely. Don't feel bad there. So now let's get to you, Dr. Hood. In the interest of time, we'll just say a few here. Your undergraduate was at Caltech, where your professors included Linus Pauling and Richard Feynman. Your MD is from Johns Hopkins. And you returned to Caltech, where you earned a PhD, sort of ran out of earning credentials there. We'll give you that. You served at the National Institutes of Health, NIH, and within that, the National Cancer Institute. You returned to be a professor at Caltech, then moved up to the University of Washington, ultimately resigning to create the Institute for Systems Biology. Now, I am skipping a lot here, but let's not leave out several of your many scientific instruments that you've developed. And I'll mention just two. As listeners, I think we'll understand why they're important. Uh, One is the first automated DNA sequencer identifying the order of your DNA, the order of those G, C, A's, and T's uh, in your DNA. A big thank you from everyone who's ever gotten their DNA read, and from all of 23andMe in particular. Another invention I want to point out 
is your DNA synthesizer, which enables the generation of short sequences of DNA. Short sequences of DNA can be inserted into existing sequences of DNA, and they can create proteins which you might be missing or correcting some currently defective proteins in your body as just a few examples. Now, I'm going to make a little more time for your awards. You're a member of three national academies, sciences, engineering, and medicine, a hat trick. This does not happen very often, Uh, as well as the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Many prestigious awards, including the Lemelson MIT Prize for Innovation and Invention, the Heinz Award for Technology, and the National Medal of Science. Needless to say, dear listeners, whatever my guests are telling you, it's true. They know it. And so we're talking about just an amazing amount of credentials. So let's go back to those first two questions. How did you two come together to write this book, and why is it important? You want to start, Nathan? Sure. Yeah, so Lee and I have been working together. Uh, We actually met for the first time 21 years ago. So we've been together and, and working for quite a long time. And for about the past 11 years, we've really been engaged uh, deeply in uh, what we call scientific wellness. And so Lee and I had become really convinced that medicine was too focused on care after illness, after you got to a stage where reversal is really hard. Uh, And there's many confounding factors that have happened. You have the cause of the disease, you have downstream consequences, and also compensatory mechanisms, which where the body's trying to save itself And those can often be misinterpreted as related to the disease. And so we became very convinced that we had to focus upstream and be on health. So this led, as we'll get into a a number of studies, but at the end of all this process, when with all we've learned over the last decade, we really felt like there was enough that people needed to know. And we wanted to get our story out in a form that's not just in all the very many scientific papers that we write, but in a form that was easy to digest, that people could understand so that we could get enough excitement so that we could help to put hopefully more pressure or insight or into the medical system to say, we need to restructure as much as we can around a wellness paradigm and not only late stage disease. And uh, I would add to that, that what I think really enabled us to write the book more than anything else was COVID-19. And Basically, what happened is we were in suspended animation for two and a half years, and Nathan and I actually decided uh, that that was a great time to write a book. I have a place out on Friday Harbor, uh, San Juan, which uh, is an island off the coast of of, the state of Washington, and we decided we could spend a fair amount of time there both conceptualizing exactly what the book should include, dividing up the chapters, and we pretty much evenly split the book right in half, Nathan writing the half that uh, was most relevant to his expertise and I doing exactly the same thing. And I I think what was unusual about our partnership is it's rare do you get to spend that much time with your soulmate in writing a book, so that we really had thoroughly discussed and raked over everything we were going to do. And even with that, I must say, after writing the first edition of the book, 
when we took it to Harvard University Press, we had a wonderful editor that said, well, this book is okay, but here you can fix it in all these ways. And I would guess, I don't know, perhaps we rewrote more than half the book in that context, and we certainly modified uh, almost all of it in, in accordance with suggestions she made. So I think the intrinsic product that we created together with her experience in these kind of books has, has uh, created a book that we hope is, is going to present uh, a compelling story for really the two points that we would like to make. One is the idea that we have to have a healthcare that's uh, wellness and prevention oriented as opposed to disease oriented. And two, a really critical point is we believe we can bring this data-driven, AI-driven healthcare to every single individual and improve both their wellness and their ability to avoid disease. You're right. Few people realize it. But the 10 most popular drugs in the United States today work collectively for only about 10% of treated patients. Don't these people have these conditions? So I think the real point that comes out of that study, which was uh, published in Nature, a really prestigious journal, and I will say people argue about whether 10% is too low, but I would say even if it's 30 or 40%, that's way too low still. And the important point is, one, a lot of people are getting exposed to drugs where they do no good, and in fact, they only experience their harmful side effects. And number two, if you realize that we spend $600 billion a year on drugs, and let's say we could get rid of 90% of that money, because with a data-driven approach to healthcare, we'll be able to identify and identify quite quickly for major drugs, uh, biomarkers that will say unequivocally, it'll work for you, but it won't work for you. And even in the aftermath of taking it, there's technology that could say, well, it's not working now. We don't know why, but it's not working, as opposed to the doctor saying, how do you feel? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And so you can stratify the way that you look at data just the way you, you describe. So where you identify what are called surrogate endpoints, which are basically changes that are associated with changing the course of the disease itself. And you can see those in an earlier facet. Like one that we, we looked at, which is quite interesting around statins, is you can wait to see if it changes your LDL cholesterol, which is itself a you know, marker for cardiovascular disease, but you can in fact get an instantaneous readout in most of these cases by something called HMG, which is a molecule that will change immediately if the statin is hitting its target, even before you wait to see how big of an effect it will have downstream. That's just an example, but you could build those same kind of things around all the different diseases. And the big thing that you need is to have data sources that are rich, that predate disease in, in large populations. And that's what we've been spending a lot of the last decade uh, really building out. 
Well, now we get to data. You've both mentioned data, whether you said biomarkers, meaning biological measurements of something going on, or just large data sets that AI might look at. We'll get to that. But this data might be looked at in three different categories. And the first two we have terms for that I, I really want people to remember, and it's genome and phenome. Phenome is P-H-E-N-O-M-E, phenome. What's the difference between genome and phenome? And what are they to begin with? So the genome is the basic source code of life. It is the order of the four letters of DNA language present in your 23 uh, pairs of chromosomes. And the genome, to a first approximation, is invariant across life. You're born with a genome, and that doesn't change, except in the case of cancer and in uh, many cases. The phenome, on the other hand, is something that measures how you change as you develop and you age and you move uh, into old age and so forth. And in a sense, the phenome is a snapshot of you at each point, each instant in your life. So we have an essential infinity of phenomes that we could measure. And we measure the phenomes by actually putting together three important things. And these phenomes are governed by those three things. So one is your genome, the source code, it directs development. Your DNA, yeah. Your DNA. The other is your behavior. It has a profound effect on your phenome. Do you exercise, do you eat too much, uh, and so forth. And the third thing is your environment. Are you in a healthy environment? Or are you in a uh, environmentally compromised environment with toxins and things like that. So those three things can be measured very easily by one, doing your whole genome sequence, determining the order of the letters in the in your chromosomes. By two, sampling the blood. And in the blood are a multiplicity of proteins and a multiplicity of metabolites and lipids and things like that. Number three, sampling your gut microbiome, that is identifying the diversity and nature of species that live in your gut microbiome and have a profound impact on your health. And then four, we've used digital health measurements like the Fitbit to look at activity and sleep and things like that. So all of these things together are called the phenome and the phenome is what gives us really an accurate view of what your health trajectory is at any given instance in time. And with those measurements, we're learning to assess your health trajectory and to optimize it as we move into the future. Which gets us to that big third one, digital measurements of health which may not be the internal measurements, but all kinds of measurements as well. Yeah, so this is an area that's exploded, you know, really in, in recent years. And you know, so many of us have that, right? You probably have your, your Apple Watch or your 
Fitbit or the Garmin or the anyway, you could you could mention a, a million of these. A big list, a big list, a yeah. big list. But basically, you can get a lot of health relevant information on a daily basis. You can get pings from your devices to change behavior. Uh, you can monitor for heart health. You can monitor for activity, for skin temperature, for you know, on and on breathing patterns and so forth. And so these really give a lot of rich information that you can tie together with a lot of the molecular data that, that Lee just went through and give you a very complete view of health, which you can then take to give personalized recommendations back to people uh, to help them optimize uh, their wellness as they go through their life. Now, we don't often talk about our minds when we're talking about the health of our bodies, but you have a chapter entitled Keeping Your Mind Healthy for Life. What's the connection? Well, an important part of, of uh, health is the integrated health of your brain, the health of your body, and the health of your microbiome. And they seamlessly together make you healthy or make you unhealthy. And what is really striking in modern medicine is brain health has almost entirely been ignored. For example, when is the last time you ever had a physician say, and how is your brain? <laughs> how about ever? <laughs> and it turns out that we're collaborating with Professor Michael Merzenich at UCSF, who started a company, Posit, that has a digital approach to the assessment of 25 different kinds of cognitive features. And what this assessment can do is not only say, where is your reaction time? Where is your depth of field perception? How is your memory on and on for the other 22, uh, uh, 22 concepts? But it can correct them if they're deficient by essentially providing games that challenge the very aspects of cognitive uh, limitation that you have. And the remarkable contributions that, that Michael Merzenich made to understanding the brain is for the first time he made it clear that the brain is plastic, that it can be changed at any point in your life. In fact, he did studies that demonstrated beautifully as we grow, our cognitive abilities come typically to a maximum in the mid-30s and they decline thereafter for most people. And so what Merzenich showed is by taking close to a thousand people that the majority of them could actually be encouraged to reconstitute their lost functional activities at somewhat near the level they would have had at their maximum. So it means there's hope for all of us yeah. that we can go back to where we went before. But, but the essence of the idea is it's beyond ridiculous to talk about health without realizing that the brain has to be exercised just like the heart and body does to really be healthy. And so what we want to do is create opportunities for that exercising that deals not only with the cognitive features, but there are exercises one can do that deal with the integrative uh, features of 
the cerebrum and how it puts everything together for you and executive function and all these kinds of things. And the ultimate objective of the integration of these three things, the uh, brain health, the body health, and the gut microbiome, is we want to give people the wherewithal to move into their 90s or even into their 100s uh, physically capable, mentally alert, and in a position to be creative, interactive, communicative, and so forth, which is just not true of many people today. That is, we like your health span, the amount of time that you live in good health, to equal your lifespan and to have that equal 100 or more years. One thing I'd like to talk about is cancer and how we need to think about cancer. Will early diagnosis really become sort of widespread routine diagnostics every year because it's so early? Um, and once diagnosed, what can we hope for? Can we hope for cures or simply to keep cancer at bay, to outlive your cancer, if you will? You know, initially we started with techniques that were burn, slash, and cut. So they were enormously nonspecific, and you just tried to cut out and or destroy tumors wherever they might be, and that was not very discriminating. And from that, we moved to an era of chemotherapy where you tried to poison the cancer with the arguments being their very rapid-growing cells. And if you kill the rapid-growing cells, you'll kill the cancer. You kill other normal rapid-growing cells at the same time. So it wasn't necessarily a desirable solution. But, you know, collectively, those things didn't move the, the uh, scale very much on improving our ability to uh, deal with cancer. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Dr. Leroy Hood and Dr. Nathan Price about the age of scientific wellness, why the future of medicine is personalized, predictive, data-rich, and in your hands. Dr. Hood has been speaking about developments in cancer. I think the one big hope that is just coming to the fore now uh, over the past 10 years or so is immunotherapy. The ability to turn the immune system and to direct its attack at the cancer and to direct that attack in a very specific targeted way that just goes after cancer cells. Now, that isn't nearly as easy as it sounds, and people are still struggling with that. But anyway, that is the real hope for the future. But the really important point, I think, about cancer is this whole idea that we now have a technique we think that will allow us to detect cancer very early, years before it ever manifests itself clinically. And if we can do that with appropriate biomarkers for all the different kinds of cancer, then you can imagine a data-driven strategy whereby we'd say, look, Mrs. Jones has a mar marker that says in four years, she's going to get uh, pancreatic cancer that could progress to stage four. Let's treat it now. 
Now, we have to think about how to treat it, but we know that at that early moment of transition from wellness to cancer, the changes are simple. So we can really characterize the simple changes and make them. And in fact, it might even be really effective to have immunotherapy really aggressively attack that cancer when it's very small and hasn't had many changes and things like that. But be that as it may, I think we now have the possibility with this data-driven approach to health to be able to continuously monitor several, every six months uh, patients and to say, oh my goodness, here are a set of proteins that says you're gonna get uh, type two lung cancer or type three breast cancer or whatever it is. And there is experimental evidence that suggests this is true that has come out of a study of 5,000 individuals that were followed over four years in a company called Aerobale that was bringing scientific wellness to consumers, where 167 of them transitioned from wellness to disease. And we actually looked at 10 of them that made the transition to cancer and demonstrated there were these markers that we could detect. But I think to convince the world what we're going to have to do is what my nonprofit company, Phenome Health, argues we should do, is we'd like to look at a million normal individuals uh, over a period of 10 years doing this genome-phenome analyses, and we think supported, in a sense, as a second genome project by the government, we think there'll be just a superb chance that we can unequivocally show, one, the quality of healthcare has increased enormously for all of the individuals in the program, and even more important, two, we can end up saving trillions of dollars for the healthcare system because to take it from a disease-oriented system to a wellness-oriented system, there has to be financial gain for people that are in it. And these are the kind of savings that I think can really turn heads. That's a long answer, but at least it gives you a complete one. You've just listened to part one of a two-part interview with Dr. Leroy Hood and Dr. Nathan Price. Part two of that interview is featured in our next podcast. My guests today are Dr. Leroy Hood and Dr. Nathan Price. Their book is The Age of Scientific Wellness, Why the Future of Medicine is Personalized, Predictive, Data-Rich, and In Your Hands. It's published by the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.